0: Is my request. You don't have to play it, but I hope you'll do your best. I've been listening to your show on the radio, and you seem like a friend to me. Funny to hop off at 8 o'clock at the Greater 3UZ Sammy Show for Friday night. Okay, the time is twenty-two before nine, twelve seventy-two SM with you, Macray, in the morning.
1: Four AP and Kevin Hillier, Sunday morning. Out for a couple of showers later today, and a top of twenty-five. It's twenty-seven price twelve right now. This is Laurie Bennett at two SM. At twenty-four to eight with Peter Grayson, down at the moment, seventeen degrees. Hi,
0: hi Victoria. Stand the man. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to speak to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest started his radio journey back in 1954 and has been part of the Melbourne, Geelong and Bendigo radio scenes ever since. Ian Nichols is a true radio veteran. Hey Ian Nichols. welcome to Pilots
1: and thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure Paul, I've been following the podcast series with a great
0: deal of interest of course because a few of my old mates have already appeared there. Well thanks for that. 68 years in the business and still going strong there at KLFM in Bendigo, but it was country Victoria at Woodend and in the Melbourne suburb of Brunswick where it all started for a young Ian Nichols. Well, that's right. I always wanted to be a radio person. Uh, yeah, right
1: from high school, I went to a, the University High School, which was in Parkville, very close to Brunswick. and uh, some of my schoolmates were already uh, child actors, if you could put it that way, Crawford Productions. they were they were ahead of me. They were making radio serials even in uh, nineteen fifty you know four. And uh, I sat next to uh, a guy that went on to be one of the big producers for Crawford's, a guy called Don Batty. So uh,
0: there were two or three guys, and uh, some of them followed me into radio as well. Okay, it's first up at 2LF in Young in New South Wales in 1954. So what was your parents' reaction to the then 16-year-old moving 600 kilometres up the Hume Highway? Look, pretty horrified, I've got to say, Paul. Look, they were always very supportive. And
1: uh, they drove me all the way up there in the Little Morris Minor to to Young. and They hadn't been there and neither had I at that time. I applied for two jobs in that week and one was at Swan Hill. The other was at Young and uh, was Young that um, that I was, was my choice. And uh, yeah, they were pretty horrified and uh, just wondering what the hell a
0: 16-year-old kid was doing 600, as you say, miles from home. So how did you personally cope with such a change of lifestyle at such an early age? Well, I don't think I really thought too much about it. I immediately went into a um, a boarding house with other. Uh,
1: there was one uh, a school teacher and our chief announcer. So, um, it, I sort of dropped into it fairly quickly. And this guy, Mike Richards, I'll never forget him. He uh, he'd come across from Two CA Canberra. He was one of the guns of that network, and he was very supportive, very helpful. So, look, I didn't think too much about it. I was thrown right into the fray, and when the work takes over. You sort of forget about um, personal issues, you know. It it was so exciting, of course, at that time. There was no television. Radio
0: was the medium, you know. So looking back, what were some of those early lessons that you learned at that very first appointment? Well, of course, I made a lot of mistakes, Paul. And they were quickly pointed out to me.
1: It was a fairly strict regime. We had – there was a manager and an assistant manager – a program manager, and a chief announcer. So all those guys were, you know, they ran pretty uh, tough school at that time. They, and look, a lot of the announcers there were quite young. I wasn't the only teenager on on staff there at TULIF. And um, look, they were very strict. It was the good old days of radio, you know, when everything had to be just right, including your, your even your mode of dress, you know. You couldn't turn up looking sloppy like you can today in trackies and, uh, you know,
0: all that sort of stuff. 1955, it was back to Melbourne and to 3AK, well before the days of the association with the old television city, in what was a rather interesting location in St Kilda. Well, it was. It was in number 17
1: Gray Street, St Kilda, right in the heart of the red light area, particularly in that era. And, of course, um, for a young fellow of my age, it was a little bit daunting. I used to do a weekend shift, actually, and uh, leave the front door open so that visitors could come in and have a cup of tea with me. (laughs) So, yeah, I was a bit naughty, I guess. But anyway, that was, uh, look, I was so grateful to get a a Cap City appointment. But as I found out later in life, it was far, I I wasn't really ready. and It was far too soon. But uh, what an exciting time. And uh, my parents, of course, were quite happy that I was coming back home again in time for the uh, Olympic Games. So what were your duties at AK? Well, it was just only the one shift. I, it was the morning shift, 9 till 12. Um, a fellow called Bill Barnes had vacated the slot. And the manager at the time, Bill Bowie, I I'd, uh, I'd made him aware of the fact that I wanted to come back to Melbourne. And uh, he he called me and uh, it happened rather quickly. And all of a sudden there I was thrust. Uh, into the thrusted into the the limelight, mind you. At that time, 3AK, of course, only broadcast during daylight hours. It had only recently come off being an all-night station. It used to be from midnight till dawn, and they got the license to go all day. But of course, as you know, it sh- it shared the the uh, transmitter or the mast with 2BS Bathurst, so we had to close in winter at 5 p.m. in autumn and spring at 6 p.m. and in summer. Seven o'clock. So it was a weird license. I think I've heard other people allude to this one. Uh, maybe it was Brendan Cheedy a little while
0: ago uh, talking about those weird hours when before nine actually acquired the station, yeah. So then it was down to the surf coast at 3GL for a year and then a very unusual step of going back to school, a radio school that is, with the legendary Lee Murray. Well, that's right. He, he made all the difference. Of course, I was... I thought
1: at the time I was hard done by when 3AK let me go, but it was the best thing that could have happened. I went to a very busy radio station in 3GL Geelong, and I knew right from the outset that if you wanted to move from a regional market into the Cap City, Lee Murray was the doyen of uh, voice producers and and uh, he he had a certain magic about him i'd already been to the vincent school of broadcasting but that was a pretty straightforward course uh, lee took you through all the uh, well all the ins and outs of having you know a, a specialized uh, performance really that's what it was
0: stay tuned and keep happy on the So with the experience of working with Lee Murray, it's off to an emerging 3UZ in the newsroom, working with the likes of the great Tom Jones and for radio heavyweights such as John McMahon and, of course, the legendary Lewis Bennett. Well, they were they were big names. They were the icons of Melbourne radio at that time. And
1: again, I was a little bit underdone, I've got to say, Paul. I wasn't quite ready for it. Tom Jones had a lot of uh, faith in me. Uh, that, uh, that lasted only a few months because I, I as I said, I was a little bit uh, underdone at that time. but what an exciting period it was, the newsroom, particularly at 3UZ, 45 Burke Street, when they had all the American you know visiting uh, pop stars come, they always came to 3UZ. and they would get out on the um, veranda at 3UZ in Burke Street, stop the traffic and to get onto that veranda, the stars had to come through the newsroom and through a window. Actually, an open window (laughs) and on to the, it wasn't exactly uh, occupational health and safety in those days, but that was an exciting time. And as I said, it didn't last for too long, but look, things happened very quickly in those days when there was only five or six AM radio stations, uh, people were moving constantly, but it was a great experience. And Tom Jones was one of the great news people, of course. And I worked with John Worthy, who'd been my hero. Uh, So
0: that was a, and I worked with John later, of course, at a number of radio stations. Next stop was 3XY for your first stint there. Now we all know about XY in the 70s and 80s, but what was it like in the early 60s? Well, it was totally different. It
1: was a struggling radio station. If you talked about rating success, they literally had none in that era because they were all over the place. They were trying to be all things to all people. But what a What a relief for me to just walk around the corner to Spring Street, the Princess Theatre building, and land a job at 3XY. Look, they had some interesting, they had some very good announcers. They played great music, but they simply, they weren't in a league like 3UZ or 3KZ or the other stations at that time. But of course, things changed quite dramatically later in the 1960s when, uh, and you'll probably allude to this, Paul, I don't want to get ahead of myself, you know, when Digger May moved in and uh, the 2SM connection was very strong
0: and they became one of the great radio stations of Melbourne. Yeah, for sure. No doubt about that. Now, Ian, one of the jobs at XY was, of course, the celebrity interviews. And of course, there was none bigger than June 1964 at the Southern Cross Hotel in Melbourne chatting with the Beatles.
1: How did you feel about this reception today? We've never seen anything like it in Melbourne, but I guess to you
0: it's more or less second nature. Well, it's not. This this kind of thing isn't, you know, because this is, let's face it, it's fantastic. Uh, you know, I was just saying to this fellow up
1: here that it's, it, it can't be equaled, you know. It's marvellous. I mean, the, the same with Adelaide, you know. I don't think you can get much better than both of these receptions we've had. Fantastic. Well, that was extraordinary. Uh, my news director at the time, John Ford, said to me, we want to get you down to the southern, into the bowels of the hotel. I want you to take the news car down and park it in the basement. And I want you to secrete yourself in the hotel, no matter what you do. Be inside before the, you know, the hordes arrive outside. You'll never get into the place. I'd already had a, a bit of an association with the Southern Cross doing uh, celebrity interviews, because in those days, that's where most of them stayed. Anyway, that was a, an incredible day and I wasn't really aware of just how big it was going to be, to be quite honest with you. And look, I had an absolute stroke of good fortune. Uh, later in the day, I'd just sort of been running around corridors and hiding in the, the toilets. I'd been doing all kinds of things to avoid security, which wasn't very strong in those days. And the EMI Manager at the time, a fellow called Cliff Baxter, saw me lurking around. He said, "Come with me." He said, "We're having a reception for these fellows before the actual news conference." So I, I could not believe my luck. So I, I managed to get a one-on-one with five Beatles because Jimmy Nickel was the stand-in drummer for that Melbourne concert. The Ringo Starr was uh, wasn't well; he had the flu or something similar. It wasn't very; he was in bed anyway. He was a bit crook to say the least. Although I got an interview with Ringo as well. So that was one of the, well, one of the great highlights of my life, but it was, wasn't until much later I, I sort of, you know, was able to see what an impact it had.
0: It was fantastic. So what were they like to talk to
1: well, they were all very friendly guys. They were quite young, of course. They you know, they were just starting their career really on an international standard. Uh, Ken Brodziak had brought them out to Australia uh, on just a, a few successes they'd had, but uh, they were gaining impetus at the time, the Beatles, to become absolutely over the top by with, with the time they got to Melbourne. But they were really nice guys. They were all different in their own way, and none of them, uh, gave me any problems. Um, I, I suppose at the time when I listened back to, to the interview itself, it was a bit cringeworthy, actually, some of the questions I asked them. But uh, they were just beautiful people. And as I said, they were, you know, they they hadn't really peaked either. They were just coming to, well, in 1964, because they had, I think at one stage, four hits in the top ten at um, at that period.
0: So, yeah, look, they were fantastic. And as I said, they were just Nice young lads, really. Ian, can you recall any other reporters that were there at the time also grabbing interviews with the Beatles? Well, the other person that I remember very closely was Stan Rove, who I I
1: had a great admiration for, one of the greats of Melbourne radio. And Stanley, the manly one, was there doing his stuff. But he was the only one I can remember because they had scheduled just a little later in the day a general news conference, an all-in. So um, the Beatles sat at a podium or a table, and um, the interviewer sat in 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 seats like a little theatre was. But I didn't go to that one because I'd been fortunate enough to uh, to secure the interview with, uh, as I said, all five, including Jimmy Nichol, the poor drummer who had to uh, go back to uh, London the day after sitting a lonely. Well, I don't know the, the the Melbourne Herald or Sun it was in those days had a picture on the front page of Jimmy Nichol out at Essendon Airport, where international flights uh, arrived. And here he was on his lonesome looking
0: forlorn on his way back to uh, to London. A quick 12 months down doing breakfast at 7HT in Hobart, then back to Melbourne to 3DB for the first of three tours of duty in Flinders Lane. Firstly, that would have been around the time that Curtis Crawford was in charge. How would you find Mr. Crawford? Well, he was a tough, he was a real taskmaster. Actually,
1: I'd had interviews with Curtis Crawford previously. I'd always wanted to work for 3DB. And when I arrived at 3DB, he was in the United States of America. And I was hired by their chief executive officer, a fellow called Max Elmer, who was also the president of the Hawthorne Football Club. And um, when I applied for the job, I was in Hobart. And he, he, had, he had one claim to fame, apart from working at 3DB as their CEO. He was the president of the football club. That, uh, and, and he secured the services of Peter Hudson one of the grateful forwards of all time for the Hawthorne Footy Club from New Norfolk in Hobart, Tassie, and he said to me, and he wasn't right, I might say, he said, I think I've got another Peter Hudson. Didn't quite work out that way, though. <laughs> <laughs> and when Curtis got back from America, I'm rem- he said, On oh, no, no, not him. <laughs> anyway, it was a pretty ordinary start. But ha- however, I had a long association with them, and I got on quite well. Eventually, with Curtis Crawford. the only thing he said to me
0: that flattered me, he said, "You are the best dressed and answer we have." That's what all. <laughs> that's all I can say. <laughs> Well, at least you got a compliment. Now, that would have also been around the time of the Silver Fox John Eden, Geoffrey McComas, and, of course, Gerald Lyons. 3DB and 3LK, key stations in Victoria of the major broadcasting network, a quarter to eight. This is the Herald Sun Radio News, read by Geoff McComas. Lots of correct pronunciations in that lot, and I dare say a fair bit of cigarette smoke as well. Yes, there was. The,
1: yeah, the ashtrays in the uh, in the studios and some of them smoked uh, unfiltered cigarettes, uh, you know, Chesterfields and Camels. It was, we didn't even think about the pollution or what it might have been, you know, this passive smoking caper. Never, and I look, I smoked at the same time because it was during an era when the cigarette companies uh, handed out cigarettes to with disc jockeys, radio announcers uh, as if they were chocolates, you know all you had to do was somehow surreptitiously get a, a mention of Rothman's of Pell-Mell on the air, you know, <laughs> all that. So we were all smokers, and I think some of us believed that it actually helped your voice, you know, um, particularly methylated cigarettes. But, yeah, look, they were they were heady days, and uh, I had a lot to do with Gerald, because he, uh, wasn't big, he wasn't the first talkback operator there. Barry Jones, who later became a member of, you know, Federal Parliament uh, was the first person to do talk back on 3D, but, but Gerald Lyons was one of the great characters. Loved his work, and uh, and and John, John Eden, of course, he'd been the doyen of breakfast announcers. Just, I, I'd say that's a fair comment until perhaps Don Line arrived at 3UZ, and uh, the radio industry changed quite dramatically after that. So, what was your role at the station at the time? Well, I went in to do Drive, actually, to replace Barry Ferber who'd uh, actually been out of favour at the time. Uh, And ironically enough, Barry took my gig at 7HT in Hobart. We virtually swapped places, but it wasn't intended to be that way. And I went in to drive, and what happened, um, I I was there for about a month or so, and we had another station called 3LK, which was broadcast out of Flinders Lane, uh, which went to the Wimra. And uh, and they split twice a day, uh, lunchtime and drive. And so they put it to me that, uh, again, if I'd like to do that, <laughs> I'd have a job for quite a long time to come. So uh, naturally, I spent a lot of time on 3LK and going up to the Wimber to Horsham doing outside broadcasts and the like. But eventually, um, I got back into uh, the mainstream of 3DB. I was a float I did the Saturday afternoon race. I did, uh, and then occasionally I would. Um, do a weekend, well, I did a weekend shift. It was a, an interesting one. They had a hillbilly show, a live show from an auditorium. And uh, all I did was the commercials, of course, and uh, played uh, second fiddle to a guy called Dick Cranburn, who was an extraordinarily
0: popular person in that era, yeah. Now, Ian, part of your CV that intrigues me is your radio tour of duty in the UK with the UBN Network, with UBN standing for United Biscuit Network, what can you tell us about UBN and your time there? Well, that was uh, that was really interesting. Uh, they
1: broadcast on a landline right across England and Scotland to all of their factories, the Mac biscuits, but they had several biscuit brands like we have here. They had factories everywhere, and they decided that they would have a radio program 24-7. It was designed initially to uh, make sure that punctuality and... Um, they had a lot of problems with absenteeism in in, in the industry, uh, with factory workers in the UK. So they decided if they had a radio station that gave incentives on a Monday and a Friday, like we would give away television sets and all kinds of things just to get them to work. I mean, what a concept it was. I was hoping, of course, to get into commercial radio. It hadn't arrived at that time. The pirates had gone, but this was a wonderful opportunity. I'm very grateful to a guy called Neil Spence, who was the PD there, to give me that gig. And uh, and it was quite extraordinary. Uh, that beautiful studio is all set up at the Biscuit Factory, and I did several shifts there, including some news. Uh, I think I was the only Australian, although I was replaced by another Aussie, uh, from 3DB, when I came back home, ironically enough, that was purely coincidental, I might add, but that was designed to make the workers happy. And I remember when I came back, uh, telling Jeff McComas all about it, and he put the proposition to some very big manufacturers who were who were having trouble with absenteeism,
0: but they wouldn't buy it. No, it wasn't quite. They weren't quite ready to make that sort of outlay, you know. So, you returned back to DB after the UK and completed two more stints there over the next eight years or so at a time when there were many changes to both personnel and format at the station. Well, look,
1: they were, yeah, they were, What in today's lingo, I suppose, they were game changers, weren't they? I came back and uh, I, I, uh, Don Kinsey was the PD when I arrived back from England and I went into mid dawns. I've had a lot of mid dawn shifts in my career. this <laughs> might tell you something about me. And um, so I was very happy to get it. Get uh, well, actually, when I came back, uh, John Howell from 7HT actually gave me the first offer to go back to Hobart, but my mother and father said, you've been away from home far too long. And uh, so I stayed with DB right through that era. It was fairly stable until we got into some very heavy format changes, and it was necessary at that time. First of all, was ret, well... The famous Red Hamilton Walker was the first of the international programmers to come in and have a very big influence on 3DB. And I'm sure you'll allude later to when Brendan Sheedy came in in 1975, and we had a complete change of lineup. So DB had been the uh, the family station had been very conservative, had announcers that talked uh, you know very correctly all the time, and um, and it was essential. I mean Curtis Crawford was a stickler for pronunciations, and he made sure that people like Jeff McComas kept an eye on everybody. <laughs> Not that we all wanted to sound like Jeff, but he was. Um, if you're talking about you know correct politically correct as well, Jeff was. Uh, that's what was happening, and it was probably
0: too conservative, and that's why. Quite radical changes came along to 3DB. Now, we mentioned Brendan Sheedy before. Now, he came on board and brought a fair bit of on-air talent with him. He certainly did. Well, the big he brought in a whole lot of guys from Perth
1: who were wonderful operators. He, of course, Rick Melbourne was on Breakfast, and there's only one Rick Melbourne, really. Let's be honest about that. Ted Bull was doing Mornings. He was from Perth. Uh, Keith Harris came across from Perth, was doing Drive. And we had uh, a change in music, of course. Um, the music of the day was now being heard on 3DB. We had a couple of uh, interest It was DB music. The whole lot of things came through under, under uh, Brendan. And um, so my job as of 1975, uh, I was taken off mid-dawn and put in as producer of Ted Bull and also the newsreader for The Morning. So uh, adieu. <laughs> it's nice to be... Um, versatile I guess so I was able to do news and and a whole lot of things but working with Ted Bull was quite that that was really a great experience and he was a good operator Ted he'd come over from Perth and he'd had a lot of experience he'd been at 2UW and oh, just a and a really nice guy you know so
0: he brought a new sound to uh, to Melbourne Radio yeah now, Ian, did you ever have to wear a caftan or burn a little bit of incense in the corner when working with Ted? You've been doing your research more than I thought, Paul. Well, not quite, but, gee,
1: did have an influence on me, and I was wearing sort of um, interesting shirts and uh, and uh, I think so some- in necklaces and jewellery and all that sort of stuff. You know, you've, if you can't beat them, you've got to join them, they, they sometimes say. Uh, but, uh, gee, there was a couple of interesting stories during the Ted Bull reign, if I could tell you. Um, one which I've never forgotten. Uh, one morning, about 1975, six, uh, Mike, Michael Douglas, the son of Kirk Douglas, was staying at the Hilton Hotel Close to the city, East Melbourne, and he was due to come in for an interview with Ted. I think it was about ten o'clock in the morning. He didn't turn up, and Ted was livid and said, "We." And I don't think Brendan was all that happy either. So I got, I had to get into the three DB news car, drive out to the Hilton, which was a short drive, and uh, and get him, bring him back to the station. I said, "How the hell am I going to do that?" Anyway, I went to reception, and they they wouldn't do it these days, but they gave me his room number knocked on his door and said, hey, you're supposed to be at 3DB, Mr. Douglas. <laughs> and He took it fairly well. I said, I can drive you back in the, you know, but he said, no, I said, I understand. I'm sorry. And he turned up about, you know, 11 o'clock, but that, we got through that one. Okay. And the second one was Lee Marvin, who was staying at the Southern Cross Hotel. And he also failed to turn up. And uh, Ted said, you're going up to the hotel, take the recorder, you do it we've got to have Lee Marvin. We've promoted. And uh, he was a lot taller. And um, I was really overawed by his presence. And, and of course, what a voice. I'd always loved his voice, Lee Marvin. And uh, he was just delightful. Again, apologetic. But in those days... Uh, nobody was ever really punctual, you know, for interviews and things, because they were probably doing three or four radio stations. We weren't getting people exclusively, but Ted had some great guests over the time, and the other one was Charlton Heston, you know, Ben Hur himself, and he gave me an autograph photo of him, and uh, I've, I've still got that. I treasure that. Uh, but um, he had some very interesting guests for his time in 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 morning radio. Uh, very entertaining and and he got his fair share of the ratings as well.
0: Now, you had five years in the newsroom at 3MP. In what were the real formative years of the station, who were some of the announcers recruited to get the station off the ground? Well, I wasn't there on day one because Ray
1: Bean, the general manager, didn't want has-beens. He didn't want people that had already been in Melbourne radio. So he came in with a brand new lineup. Dean Matters was on breakfast when I arrived there. We had Keith McGowan, who'd worked with Ray at 2UW in Sydney, Uh, baby John Burgess. we had a guy from the ABC who'd been very popular in the afternoons there. He's named just as Dickie Coombe, Richard Coombe, yes, that's right. Uh, Graham Rebeck was on drive. Richard Perno had come down from uh, Sydney as well. Uh, it was quite a formidable lineup, and it started to evolve and change over the journey. And I remember in 1978, uh, I ran into Dean Mattis at a function, and he said, uh, I'd, I'd known Dean for quite some time, and he said, I'd like you to read the uh, the breakfast news. I said, well, you might have a bit of a problem with Ray, because I'd already auditioned for, to UW many times without success. Anyway, as it happened, the, Ray said, that, that's fine. I came down. Barry Owen was the news director at the time, and I slotted into the newsroom there and worked mainly with Dean Matters in the morning. And uh, I was just listening to small cassettes the other day, and I I never thought that I'd work with Greg Evans, but I did. Apparently, at three at three MP, uh, there he was, and there there was a, a shift that uh, I was reading the news for the Greg Greg Evans. So, uh, but while we had such a, a lineup over the journey, you know, when you when we got to number one, um, I just the year escapes me, nineteen eighty something, fifteen uh, point eight percent, just got to the top of the ratings in uh, that little radio station down in the bay you know the bay city shopping center and the elation the excitement and the uh, the celebration went on for for days i can tell you to think that this brand new station could come out of nowhere with an interesting format uh, one old one new it seemed to be um that ray had in- implemented there and uh, that was a very exciting time yeah five five we had various owners when when i joined them of course it was owned by Celebrities, you know, people like Mike Walsh and uh, Norm Spencer, Joff Allen, um, Jimmy Allen, the uh, saxophonist from the Channel Nine Orchestra, Brian Rangott, the musical director. So they were a celebrity team that actually owned the station, and that uh, that made for uh, a very nice atmosphere around the place, yeah.
0: 20 years after leaving 3XY in 1965, you wind up back at the station and part of the famous XY Zoo with the legendary Peter O'Callaghan, the delightful Jane Holmes, and a couple of Stubbs boys as well. So how did that come about? And tell us about your time at the zoo. Well, that was also
1: an interesting time. Colin Denovan, who'd been my news director at 3DB, Uh, went over to 3XY to take over the newsroom and he was asked to recruit Jane Holmes, who was working with me at 3DB at the time. And uh, Gary Soprane, the uh, PD there, I think, had uh, organised for Stubbsy and his brother Grubby, of course, and and, uh, some other celebrity comedians to be part of the team. And uh, what have I wasn't again in the, this is the story of my life? I wasn't actually the first choice, Paul. A guy called Rick Wall was off at the gig and uh, declined at the last minute. And Colin said, Well, you're going to be it. And uh, gee, I was so flattered because uh, they were just exciting people to, and I love Jane Holmes, always have. And my main. Uh, job was really to write her stuff for her and and just make sure that she wasn't bullied by the boys and uh, i i richard always had a a, a little thing about uh, calling her darling, and they had a famous line, and Jane would retort, don't call me darling, and all this this sort of stuff, but they were very funny, and uh, as I said, they had a little crew of people, Grubby was brilliant on uh, doing impersonations of Harry Bitesall, the football commentator, Uh, we had a guy uh, who played the role of uh, Tassie from Tasmania, uh, Rick McKenna, who was a very funny man. And, uh, and occasionally we'd have drop-ins from people like Steve Beisard and oh so quite well-known celebrities, if you like, into the XY Zoo, which I think was uh, well, based on a format from New York City. And it went very well for a while, but of course you've got to remember it came in 1985, lasted until
0: 1988, and the FM radio was uh, overhauling AM music stations at a rapid rate, yeah. You of course had another back to the future time when you returned to 3GL and K Rock, and also some time at BFM, all down in Geelong and all part of the Surf Coast. So what was the attraction? The station format, the lifestyle, the people, all of the above, or or none of the above?
1: Well, no, it was the uh, it was an attraction to go back to Geelong. Uh, Peter O'Callaghan, who'd also been a very well the anchor for the X Y Z, approached me, he was already gone. He'd gone to I think Eon or Maybe it was Triple M by that time, I think, yeah. And uh, Hoyts Media had acquired 3GL and uh, were going to implement uh, a new crew that would take 3GL out of the AM era and into FM radio. And that was another thing I hadn't actually had any experience at that stage in FM. So that was pretty, uh, you know, exciting. And when uh, Peter O'Callaghan Poco, as we called him, uh, introduced me to Ian Grace, who I'd worked with previously, but many years earlier, said, uh, I want you to go down there as the ND. And I had to think for a second. <laughs> oh, that's right. News director. <laughs> Thank you. And so uh, after uh, three years at uh, the XY Zoo, and I remember going to Wayne Regan, who was the general manager of XY at the time, it was still owned, I think, by Paul Dainty. And um, I said, I think I should take this opportunity. And he said, I agree with you. And uh, he actually told me in confidence he wouldn't be there much longer either. He was going to Triple M. Uh, these are little funnier sides that happened. Maybe not all that interesting to people. But anyway, that's what happened. And uh, I upped everything, left Melbourne, had a lovely home in Mentone. And here I was in Geelong. And uh, that was groundbreaking stuff, I can tell you. The, the whole AM team was virtually... Uh, dispense with uh, in you know fairly quick time, and we had a whole new lineup for uh, the introduction of K Rock in Geelong.
0: just for you, only on AW, 1278. The words and music on 3AW, 1278. Now, Ian, you would have met some very interesting people on your radio journey, but spending five years overnight on 3AW with the great Keith McGowan possibly would have been an experience hard to forget.
1: Well, it was. And I was so pleased about that one. You know, When I went to 3UZ in 1958, Keith was the office boy. He'd have been about 14, a cheeky office boy at that, I might add. Then when I went to Hobart, he was working for 7HO, and we, we would often meet up for a, a drinker, although he wasn't a big drinker. Um, and then later, I worked with Keith again at 3DB and at 3GL. When I went down to 3GL, he was there in 1988. So Keith and I had worked with, uh, together at about five radio stations, and we got on very well. And uh, when I got to 3AW, he was delighted. He was actually he had some say in my appointment there because they wanted overnight News and was coming out of Sydney at that time, 1995. Yep. Um, I remember it was coming from 2GB. I do remember the guy. His name was Guy Sweeting he did the news. Anyway, Keith decided he'd had enough of accidents on the Sydney Harbour Bridge and all this Sydney-centric stuff going on. And uh, he was the one that persuaded the management to uh, to implement. So the shift was inter- well, interesting, but when I think about it, appalling. I started at 8.15 and finished at uh, 5.15. And uh, so I had the pleasure of working with Bruce and Phil, of course legendary in their own time and uh, then of course Keith who was just delightful and uh, and I a, look a, not everybody's cup of tea I know but a, a wonderful communicator he could get hold of an audience particularly his audience and they just loved him from start to finish really but yeah that was an interesting
0: time and I was very happy to be there 3AW you know doesn't get much better so Ian with many years of experience across many different formats what was the motivation to take on the role of a manager of a community station in Bendigo and what was that magic formula that you injected to make it such a success Well at the time I
1: was working for the ABC in Bendigo I was there about 18 months and I'd been listening to this station playing music from my era you know 50s 60s and 70s and they were purely music there wasn't it was fairly straightforward there was no um No interruption to the programming. They weren't doing interviews or community uh, stuff. They were just playing music, and I thought, this is good. I like this. And um, they approached me to uh, be their very first paid breakfast announcer. That then led to me uh, not only doing the breakfast, but uh, becoming their sales manager. And then eventually I became the general manager about two years later. But it was just the fact that I could come to this radio station Play the kind of music that I grew up with, at 3AK and 3XY, and do it all in my way, and and uh, not have uh, well. To be quite frank with you, Paul, and you know, a program director looking over my shoulder, strictly formatting me and uh, and uh, you know giving me a hard time, if you like. I was able to be myself, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, I'm not sure. But uh, it's been a very nice journey. And it's been going on, and it still exists today. I don't work five days a week. i back to three now. But um, I still enjoy playing those oldies, those golden oldies
0: on FM radio, yeah. Okay, if my maths is now accurate, you must be hitting or have reached 84 years old, but you're still pulling on the headphones and switching on the red light. What keeps you going after all these years? Well, I just love radio.
1: I mean, there have been times when radio hasn't loved me, perhaps, but I just love the the medium, and uh, I just get a buzz out of, we take lots of calls here, and I I, I did that when I worked mid-dawn all those years, I spent a lot of time on the phone, people just, sometimes you feel on a mid-dawn shift or here at a community station, that you're, you're working for Lifeline, not a radio station, because you do listen to a lot of people's problems and they uh, they just relate to you. And I think that's what keeps me... I, I think you've got to do something. I think if you retire and don't do anything, I'm um, going mean, to be lovely to play golf or. Bowls or whatever, and and uh, if I live by the sea, you know, go for a swim every day. But no, I just like doing this, and and I hope. Well, it's a lot of people have said you'll probably die behind the mic. Don't know whether that's actually the way to go. But anyway, uh, yeah, I just still love that medium. Um, there'll come a time, perhaps, when it loses its luster. I know now that um, more people are listening to uh, audio on devices. Um, podcasts have become enormously popular. You know. Things have changed rapidly. Not everybody is listening to the radio like they used to, but we still have, we still have an audience out there, and particularly the the demographics that we reach, are still pretty much into uh, the bedside clock radio or um, <laughs> the car radio. If they're still making cars with radios, that is, Paul. <laughs> anyway, this is a beautiful little place, and they they they
0: don't give me any grief. That's what I like. After all the years in commercial radio. <laughs> And finally, does Nico on the Bizzo prefer delivering the news or being a music jock?
1: Well, I always wanted to be a music jock. Uh, I spent the first 25 years in that caper. And then uh, the real change came in 75 when Brendan Sheedy said to me, I know you've got some background in news and that's where we're going to put you. uh, Plus this production with Ted. So I... Look, it's about longevity. It's about uh, making a dollar and uh, and staying in the industry. And news has been very kind to me. Uh, and I've been lucky to be a news reader and news director at a number of stations and work with some really great people in the news area. So, uh, But the music's the way I really wanted to go. But it wasn't to be. And... Um, that's you know that's just the history of the industry, and we're not all Don Lunn, and we're not all Greg Evans. And uh, you know, and I'm, I know I'm very Melbourne centric here, but love some of the people uh, out of uh, Brisbane. I used to love listening to people like Ray McGregor and Alan McGurvin and uh, Jim Pilgrim, and so on. Great voices out of uh, Brisbane. I actually had a, an offer of a job in Brisbane once. Uh, a guy called Peter Harding offered me a gig at 4BK, and I was about to get married the week later. Otherwise, I'd have probably taken it. But anyway, that's just another one of those funny little things that happen in your life. <music>
0: Okay, Ian, a dozen or so questions to throw at you. The first one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Well, I was working at 3MP at the time in the newsroom and uh, like
1: most people, uh, I was absolutely shocked uh, to find that um, he'd been shot dead. And uh, at the age of 40, it was just uh, overwhelming. And the fact that I'd also interviewed John Lennon, he was my favourite. Getting back to that Beatles interview, I remember when he came up to me, he actually approached me he was uh, smoking a cigarette, wearing those blue sort of castor oil bottle type glasses, and he was coughing. And uh, I said to him, you better do something about that. I think he was a bit taken aback about that. But no, I, I felt I had a sort of some connection with John Lennon, minimal as it might have been. So that was a real shock. Yeah. And it was three MPs, So I was right in the heart of uh, real news at that time. The last concert ticket you paid for. Well, it's uh, not all that long ago, I wanted to see um, Gladys Knight and the Pips, just pre-COVID it was, about 2019, perhaps 2020, at the Melbourne uh, Concert Hall. Um, so I'd always loved rhythm and blues, uh, Motown sound, and particularly Gladys Knight and the Pips. So And they they played that concert, then went to New Zealand, and I think it had to be abandoned. But that was the last one I paid for. I, sure I have heard uh, my colleagues say uh, in previous podcasts, they'd haven't paid for too many tickets, and uh, I've seen a lot of shows here in Bendigo, of course. But uh, they've been mainly, you know, cover bands, and uh, although one that I do enjoy is John Waters with his Green Onion, that's a great show. It's been here twice. Yeah, Ian, is there a concert act that you regret never seeing? Well, I was on holidays once uh, in Bangkok, and I knew well that Michael Bublé was doing a two-night stint there. I just loved his music from that time on. And uh, I ummed and, and 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 stuffed around and didn't didn't go to the concert. But you know, later in the night, I was at a hotel where his crew, I'd had dinner there. It was the Peninsula Hotel. It was about the most money I've ever spent on a meal. And uh, all his backing band and uh, support group came through, and they they actually got on the floor and did a show. But no, I didn't see Michael Bublé. That's one I do regret. And uh, maybe oh, well, he may come back to Australia sometime. Yeah. The word you had most trouble pronouncing on air. Well, <laughs> there's one. Oh, it's not in if that is correct. It's the word root, and uh, I'm on. I'm on. Well, there's a uh, blooper tape that's been going around for God knows how long, where I used the word root instead of route, R O U T, and it had some uh, fairly catastrophic um, consequences, actually. <laughs> Uh, that's one, Uh, a few of the people in the industry know about it Episcopal
0: Church is another one Uh, and some people call it Episcopal which of course is totally incorrect Ian, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Well look, I did have one, uh, this is an indictment on me I've got to
1: say, it was a Saturday night shift at 3DB which incorporated uh, harness racing with the great Bill Collins, uh, Ray Benson and uh, I'd had to a big afternoon at the Southern Cross Hotel. I'm not quite sure what the celebration was, but I stayed far too long. And um, the shift at 7 o'clock had started, and it started with a 10-minute news bulletin. Couldn't have been worse. (laughs) If you come in and play music, you can sort of, you know, stuff the coffee into you. and and, uh, So that's not a very good rap for me, I know. But uh, I thought I'm gone this time. And I was called into Curtis Crawford's office and he played the air checker, which is the worst thing that can happen. You've got to listen to it. You cringe, thinking this is it. And he gave me one more chance and, believe it or not, one more opportunity to work on 3LK. That seemed to be the um, the punishment at 3DB. If you've been a bad boy, you got sent across the aisle to 3LK. where <laughs> you're out of sight and hopefully out of mind. In Curtis's case, yeah. Skyhooks or Sherbert? I've got to say Skyhooks because during that time at 3XY, with during the XY Zoo Times, of course, Shirley Strawn was uh, doing Drive with Mark Irvine, Shirley Irvine, fantastic show, and uh, they, they did do prep, so some of them including Sherwell around uh, before I finished my news shift. And uh, it was great to chat to him. I was so saddened, of course, and devastated when he died in that air crash. But so that's why I I say Skyhooks here at uh, KLFM. I play both, of course, Sherbert, love Daryl Braithwaite, but there's a little bit of a sentimental attachment when it comes
0: to uh, to Skyhooks, yeah. I think I know the answer to this one. Rolling Stones or The Beatles?
1: Well, I might. Trick you here? I probably the Stones, even though I interviewed the Beatles. I also interviewed Mick Jagger, just one on one at the John batman Motor Inn in Queens Road, and I was a little bit overawed by this one. I thought, oh, Mick Jagger—he was great and <laughs> such a character. And I've still got the interview, which I one day will, fair can get onto some sort of podcast here at the station. They've got a lot of my interviews up there. Um. I think the Stones more of an edge, um, but of course, I, I, the Beatles close to me as well. But um, when it comes to musically making a choice, um,
0: the Stones, I think, because of Mick. Yeah. Do you hold a treasured piece of memorabilia from those early radio days? Well, I've got something at home that I really
1: treasure. When four double G on the Gold Coast um, became KROQ Rock, they had a. Well, you call it a garage sale. They sold everything from the Bundle Road building. Everything had to go. And I've got a beautiful mirror, quite a large mirror, and on the mirror is etched the building in Bundle Road, the four Double G Studios. Just beautiful. And look, one of these days I'd like to donate it back to to the Gold Coast. Um, That's one of the things that I treasure. I've got a beautiful pair of cufflinks from 3UZ, they they made this, I don't know whether they're gold-plated, but they are beautiful cufflinks, which I still have in a little box that I treasure. And, of course, my autographed picture of Charlton Heston as well. But the mirror, I think, is my greatest memento, if you could call it that, because that was quite an epic year, that, uh, in all of 1990, when KROQ failed to fire, basically, yeah. The biggest news story that broke while you were on air? Um, well, we've spoken about John Lennon. I would guess it had to be the death of JFK. And I was on duty at 3XY on that particular morning. Just trying to think who the announcer was. I think it might have been Jim Jimmy Wood. Anyway, that was uh, horrendous. Just uh, unthinkable that... Um, the great John F. Kennedy could be assassinated there in Dallas, Texas. So I'd put that there as, um, yeah, number one, if I had to make a choice. There's been a lot, of course, but yeah, that was quite overwhelming and still is because of the mystery that surrounds it. Ian, the best words of advice from a program manager? Well, gee, I've had a lot of those over the years and I've had some great program directors. Uh, Rhett Hamilton Walker was my favorite and um, he used to talk very calmly and very sensibly, and when he came to 3DB, he had to get some discipline into the place, and uh, the announcers were waffling on and doing their own thing. and he he said to me, "Here's my advice to you and the other guys as well. One thought, when you open that mic, one thought, one statement, don't digress, don't get carried away with other. Just get that in your mind." He wanted it to be a lot tighter and brighter. And I think that's very good advice. When you put that mic on, don't get distracted by all the things that are going through your mind. One thought,
0: one statement. And and it applied particularly to formatted radio, as it was in those days, very tight. And finally, two albums that you would consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years. Well, when I went to 2LF, the,
1: the, the staff were able to buy records, you know, at Uh, Wholesale Price, the station we paid for our albums in those days, the radio stations, and Frank Sinatra's For Swingin' Lovers. I just loved that album. It had the incredible uh, Nelson Riddle arrangement of I've Got You Under My Skin. Here I was as a kid. I think I'd turned 17 by that time. And that was my favourite. And there was another instrumental album from a guy called uh, Les Elgart, a band leader, and the album was called For Dancers Only. And later that actually became the uh, theme for the Hit Parade on Channel 7, that show they used to mime the top 10 hits of the week, or top eight, for dancers only. Liz Elgar. So you can see I'm fairly old hat, very conservative, but they had an influence, you know, the instrumental had a big influence on me,
0: and of course Sinatra always has, and that album in particular, yeah. Well Ian, 68 years in the business, a wealth of experience, a lifetime of great stories, thanks so much for sharing some of those with us today
1: it's my pleasure paul and you're doing a fantastic job i love the the podcast and i certainly love the title pilots of the
0: airwaves ian nichols on pilots of the airwaves